Father, it's great to be in this room. It was great to hear as we worship. This place started just filling up uh, with sounds of people lifting their voices, their hearts to you. But we come in here right now and ask that you do something. Would you touch us? Would you open our eyes? Would you lead us as we look into your word? And I pray that the very things you want us to even think about, ponder, pray about, you would direct that, each one individually. So we surrender this time. What an awesome place to be at. What a great church and a great chance to be in your presence. So we all pray this together in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start off with a story. I was uh, driving, and it was a canyon road, and it was late at night. On this canyon road, uh, it, it was one of those nights, it was moonless, so it was really dark, and there were certain aspects and parts of this road where there was a canopy of trees that would overhang, which makes it even harder to see. Uh, and if you're driving on dark roads, you know, your eyes can play tricks on you a little bit, so you're just trying to watch the roads, see what's ahead, is the deer going to jump out, what's happening? And as I'm, I turn another curve, I see another canopy of trees, and I'm looking and it almost looks like one of the trees is moving a little bit more than the other trees, and I can't quite make out what I'm looking at. So I'm cruising down, I'm getting closer, and the silhouette seems to break away from the backdrop of the rest of the trees. It's like, is, that a tr is it in the road? No, it's, it's in the tree line. And it was one of those things, couldn't quite get it until, boom, I'm on it. There is a woman in all black in the middle of the road, like slowly, awkwardly, waving her arms uh, it's a woman in distress in the road, so hit the brakes, swerve, you know, help her out. It's one of those moments where you think, man, I was literally right up on her before I realized that was a person in the street. I don't know if you've ever come across something where it, you, you were literally on top of something, but you couldn't quite see it or perceive it until it was literally in your face. Can you relate to this? How many of you have looked for your keys that you were holding? <laughs> right? Your sunglasses that are on your head. Uh, embarrassingly, I've actually looked for shoes I was wearing. <laughs> so irritating. Same thing can happen spiritually. You know, there, God could be doing things around us, revealing things to us about himself, but there, there's a way that we may not even be able to perceive it or pick it up. It's like we're impaired. We can't quite catch it. We're going to see a story about that today. It's a fascinating story. If you're new with us, I am so glad you're here. I, I'm going to get you caught up to speed really briefly. We're in a series. It's called Jesus the King. It's called that because Jesus is revealing himself as the true King of Kings. He is God himself, creator, come to the earth. And now uh, there are four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, and John. They're called the Gospels. And there are four accounts of his time on the earth. 33 and a half years he spent. And these accounts show different pictures and snapshots, reveal his teachings, tell the stories. We've been looking at the shortest of the Gospels. It's the Gospel of Mark. I love it. It is fast-moving, fast-paced, and is potent. And as we've been going through this story, what you see is Jesus. It is a, it, this is a series about Jesus. It is his life his teachings, his miracles, his power, and it's Jesus himself revealing himself as true king. Uh, the point we're at in the story right now is Jesus has gone public. He's now out. 
He's doing ministry. People are catching on. They're hearing amazing stories. And he is drawing attention for two reasons. One reason he's drawing attention is he is making amazing claims. One of the claims he's making is that the kingdom of God is here. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. We don't use that language. But if you were around then, there was such an understanding that everything they had learned growing up, something that had been predicted for over a thousand years, is that God himself is literally coming to earth and will reestablish rule on the earth and make all wrongs right. So when you start throwing language around like kingdom of God is here, it's going to start turning heads. Anybody could say that. The difference with Jesus, he's starting to back it up. And so as he's going around, things are happening. People are getting healed. Raise people from the dead. Now that'll turn attention, right? You just heard a couple stories if you've been with us or you've read through Mark. He has fed multitudes of people with like zero food. It just multiplied. People who have... uh, totally overcome emotionally, but also with demonic spirits, he cast them out. These are all acts of power. So you have acts of power backing up an amazing claim that the king is inaugurating his rule. And that's where we're at in the book of Mark. Now, he is around the Sea of Galilee. He's at the northern end of it as we jump in this story a little bit to the east. And uh, as we jump into this story, I'm going to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And uh, this is a very unique story. He has just come off uh, an amazing miracle, a feeding of 4,000. If you were here last week, you heard Mike teaching about uh, this interaction with these Pharisees. And these are like the religious leaders of the day, always trying to undercut Jesus, stop his message. They are totally impaired. They cannot even see that this is the one that they've been talking and teaching about themselves. And Jesus warns against the uh, yeast of the Pharisees, which is their spiritual blindedness, the hypocrisy because of that blindedness. And now we drop into a unique story only found in the book of Mark, not in the other Gospels. We're going to look at five verses today. It's very short, but very potent. It is the story of a healing unlike any of the other healings we've read about. This one is not instantaneous. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, a second touch his story, because it requires a second touch. Verse 22, it says, they came to Bethsaida. It's a little village. And some people brought a blind man, and they begged Jesus to touch him. Bethsaida, let me just give you a little snapshot. This is a little town. Uh, It's a fishing village. It literally means house of fish. Uh, It's got a great legacy as far as who came from there. Uh, The disciples, uh, Peter, Philip, Andrew, all came from this town. So it's got that legacy, but it's got some bad history too. In fact, as you read in scripture about this uh, little town, this town became infamous because it was so steeped in unbelief, it really rejected Jesus and even the things he did there. Luke 9 uh, talks about that the feeding of the 5,000 was there near that region, so obviously they've heard about that. There's another uh, chapter, Matthew chapter 5, references this little town, but it's Jesus talking about this town. He says, you know, it would be better, 
You know which towns are better, and it lists several other towns that are receiving judgment from God for the rejection. And he even says, he references Sodom. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? It says they will be better off than Bethsaida on, when judgment falls on them because it says many miracles were performed there and they rejected it. So this is some backdrop. Jesus approaches a little town. It's a town that is steeped in unbelief. People there reject him, but there's some people in this town that do believe. And these people, you have some friends, they bring a blind man to Jesus because they believe he can do something. So you have this blind man approach Jesus in this town, and uh, let's read on. Verse 23, speaking of Jesus, he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village. Now just pause before we go on. Do you see how tender that moment was? He didn't just say, all right, let's go. He didn't tell the, the friends, hey, take him outside. He takes him by the hand. He moves him. The text doesn't say why they went outside. We could speculate. Maybe it's just this town is so full of unbelief. Not going to have another miracle there. Maybe it's just to protect just this moment for this blind man. Keep it intimate. Could just be Jesus is not ready for another large crowd. He'll meet this need, but he'll do it privately. Whatever the reason, Jesus pulls him out in such a gentle, compassionate way. Takes him outside the village. And then it goes on. It says, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Wait, what? What just happened here? Uh, This is another bizarre moment. Are you catching what just happened? He spits on his eyes. Then he puts his hands on him. It's not like Jesus' spit is magical. There's something going on. Again, it's just speculation. There's ideas, there's cultural methods of healing that could have involved that and touch. Jesus often would touch, though. It's a picture of the kingdom of God drawing near. So he does this. Now, this is what's even more interesting Jesus asked, do you see anything? Well, that's interesting. It's almost like he's like a physician, assessing, how's this going? Do you see anything? Um, As you take a look at it, it goes on and says this. Verse 24, he looked up and he said, and this is the blind man, I see people. They look like trees. They're walking around. Now catch this, something is going on. He's totally blind. Now people are coming into view, but it's so foggy, it looked like trees. It's like my story at the beginning. Can't quite make it out. Would you want to give this guy a driver's license at this point? (laughs) Not so, right? He's probably still legally blind, but something's coming into view. He's still impaired, but something's changing. So as it goes on in verse 25, it says, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Now, Jesus is, is doing this again, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me, I think a quick observation, Jesus assessed how the prayer time was going, and when something's happening, he keeps going. You have to keep in mind, he's probably modeling ministry to his disciples all the time for his followers. How do you do it? Just a 
a quick thought as you're praying. If it seems that God is up to something and doing something, keep praying. Not even a bad idea to keep asking, how are you doing? What's going on? And if something's going on, keep praying. We go on, and it said this. It's a picture of a healing that continues on. It's like a progressive healing. It says, then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. It took two touches. But now it's there. Verse 26 Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Obviously, he didn't live in that place, so his home was somewhere else. Again, don't know why. Could be just to not draw attention, stay under the radar. But he sends this man off. What you catch here is a private moment where an amazing miracle once again happens. When you read a little story like this, you have to say, what is going on? What are we supposed to be catching from this? I want to give you two observations that's going to set up how we can apply it for ourselves. Two observations. The first one is a straight textual observation. What I mean by that, just looking at these five verses, what can we catch? Here's, the, here's what you can catch. That Jesus is a real king. He does real ministry. And he can deal with any darkness. He's always acting, always moving, always ministering. Moved in compassion. This physical darkness, he could take care of that. But what do we get? He can heal darkness. That's a textual observation. It seems like there's more going on than just that. Why would the Holy Spirit lead Mark? Mark is the author. Mark was a really close associate of the disciple Peter. He's one of the early leaders of the movement. And he recorded all these things that Peter was experiencing with Jesus. But as he wrote this, what is, why put this story in, in and put it in here and include it? If you're never quite sure of what the text means or where it's going, look at the context. That just means look before and after. Get a flow of thought. What was going on? Contextually, let me tell you what's going on. We just saw in this text is a two-stage healing of a person. But contextually, what's taking place is there's something going on with the disciples who are watching this. And it plays out throughout the entire book of Mark. It's a two-stage understanding of their view of Jesus. They got to catch on. He's Messiah? He has to what? Suffer and die and rise? They're, what you see is they don't quite catch everything. But there's this gradual understanding the story even serves as a literary metaphor, and it's even designed to make ourselves ask ourselves, what is it that we don't see when we look at Jesus? Because the disciples were missing some things. Fascinating story. It's a blind man's story. Let's take a look at our story. A second touch, our story. If you have your outline, you're following along. Number one, here's the first takeaway for us. First of two, we often need a second touch. We often need a second touch ourselves. Um, sometimes you will find that when people come to Christ and they bring some of their issues to him, 
you will see God intervene miraculously and instantly, and people get healed radically, instantly. I've seen it with people with certain addictions. They've had it. God meets them, broken, and they have never turned back. It has been decades. It's miraculous. Other times you see, no, it's actually more gradual. God's healing, but it's a slower, gradual process. God doesn't always heal instantly, miraculously, every time. In fact, every encounter you find with Jesus in the New Testament, he dealt with people individually and uniquely. So it's not uncommon that all of us, there's times we need second touches in different areas of our life because we're still in process of healing from different types of darkness in our own life. I found that a lot of people come to Christ, they accept him, the gift of salvation. But one thing they don't accept is the gift of freedom that he offers. There's a gift of freedom available to all. Jesus actually declares the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 when he comes on scene and does ministry. Isaiah 61, verse one, it reads this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to, pre to proclaim good news to the poor. Now listen to what it is declaring he will do. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. And release from darkness for the prisoners. Isn't that power? Release from darkness. Well what kind of darkness is that? There's a couple kinds of darkness. One is a darkness from within. One way Mark chapter 2 describes Jesus is like a great physician, a doctor. Mark 2, 17, it says this, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. What's one of the darknesses we deal with that he can free us from? It is darkness from within. It is our own sin. It is Romans 3, 23. It says, For all of us have sinned, We've all fallen short of God's glory. Well, what does that mean? That means that there is something inherently broken about us and our relationship with God. It's not about just trying to do enough good things to fix that. You can't undo it. In fact, it says when we become broken, we don't just become people who are doing bad things. It says you're actually in a place that is hostile towards God and his purposes. So it's not about going to church, taking enough classes to learn how to do enough good things to make God happy. No, there's something so inherently broken. We need a radical touch. God has got to radically change our heart. He's got to meet a need we can't meet. There's something internal. It is within the sin nature that is within us, it's broken. But that's one of the darknesses within we, we deal with. There's another kind of darkness. It's, it's darkness from pain that comes from without. I like how Psalm 34 puts it. It says in verse 19, I like this version, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Uh, how many people can identify with that? Yes, there's a lot of affliction. Sometimes life is hard. It is painful I love the next phrase, this promise. It says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. True. Now, what's powerful in this? We will all go through life. We will all be hurt. We'll be hurt by circumstances of life, hurt by ourselves, but a lot of times it's hurt from others, and we carry pain, and it hurts. Um, 
So we have our own sin. We've got our own pain. The question is, why don't we go to the Lord with it? I don't know why all the reasons. I can tell you for me. I remember early on as I began walking with the Lord, one of the things that would hold me back from bringing it to the Lord would, for me, sometimes be a fear of his reaction or perception. It's almost like, how, what, how's God going to look at this? Oh, roll his eyes. Here he comes again. Another problem. He failed again, as if God doesn't already know, right? <laughs> but if you've ever had somebody you really truly love and respect look at you with great disappointment, you know how that feels. And so you perceive that your time with God is going to come with a sense of profound disappointment and looking, and you just cannot bear the thought of that. It's that whole sense of fear of coming to God with it where it totally blocks out a great scripture that is truth about what the reality is as a Christ follower, coming to God when you're in need. It's Hebrews 4.16, and it says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? Confidence. Confidence. And what is the throne called? It's a throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, is that a place you'd like to go? Sign me up. If you forget this, we may run into something. We will ignore the hurt. We will stuff it. We will hide it. We will kick it under a rug acting as if it's not there, but it will lift its little ugly head and it will start manifesting itself in our reactions to other people, in our conflicts. It's going to come out. Um, You have to bring it to Jesus. He's the one that can heal any darkness. Another reason we may avoid it is because we don't like pain, right? Anybody relate to that? it hurts, do you want to do that? No, not really. Um, I remember, this was back in October of 07, I was at dinner, and man, my elbow was hurting like crazy. And uh, ah, so next day, wake up, this thing is now, it's a balloon. It is going like crazy. It's, I go to the doctor, they look at it. Uh, there is a staph infection that has set into my elbow. Said, Rob probably had dry skin, rubbed on a table, who knows, it just got in there. Um, but now this thing is inflamed. It is going for it. And uh, so the doctor, I had one of those doctors, if you would gauge a scale like on bedside manner of zero to 10, he's like at negative four. And, uh, he, but he knows what he's doing. He has no nonsense. And he just looks at me and he says, all right, um, how many Vicodin have you taken? Vicodin, none. Uh, he's like, nurse, get him two. He's going to need it. And then he just looks at me. He goes, I want to tell you something. Some things in life hurt. And then some things in life really hurt. This is one of those things. So I'm like, what is he talking about? And then he, he goes, here's a stick. Bite this. Uh, when I do this procedure, he says, grab two of your wife's fingers. Don't grab three. It will hurt her. One won't be enough. Grab two. And I mean, he is not flinching or he's just looking straight at me. My mind is racing so fast. Like, what are we doing? Like, uh, and then I'm thinking, what century are we in? How does this, don't we have things that you don't feel this? I don't, what is going on? Next thing you know, slice open, and he is, had to incise, drain, scrape. And I'm telling you, it's on my bursa. You, you know where your funny bone is? That's it. You understand that? Sensitive. And he's telling my wife, pay attention to this. You need to do this every day until it heals from the inside out. 
So, you know, it still hurts. I, yeah, I don't even like to tell this story. The, as, as, so we literally had to do this, insanely painful, and she had to unpack that thing, clean it out, repack gauze in it. But I'm telling you something, it healed from the inside out. Um, one of the things with us is who would ever want to run towards that? Nobody. But the thing that will make you move towards infection is when you realize it can kill you. So it's, it, whether it's a, a physical infection or it's the infection of our own sin, our own pain that is literally killing you emotionally or those around you, it may give you enough impetus to move towards it and you go for it. But I'm telling you this, when you bring it before the Lord, it may be painful to recall a memory, but it's a, it, is, it is one of the places where healing begins. And just like you may have to come back, you bring it to the Lord, the next day it may hurt again. You'll need a second touch. Let him touch you again. It'll hurt a little less. And hurt a little less. Jesus, in this story, remember how he took the man gently by the hand? He guides him. He will guide you when you go before him. He brings thoughts to mind. Just deal with those. You don't have to try and do your whole life. Let him just take you. He's gentle but he'll guide you to what he wants you to look at. If it is a sin, you confess it. If it is a pain, you release it. If it is unforgiveness, you extend it. We all need a second touch. Isn't that true? How often? That's number one. That's the takeaway from looking at the blind man. I'll give you one more takeaway. This is from looking at the disciples. We often need a new lens. We need a new lens on how we see God. You know, when you read through the Bible and you're looking at these stories of the disciples, it's one of the things that you, sometimes you just shake your head. You're like, why are they so dense? How do, they, how do they not get it? He just did this miracle. Now you're freaking out. Or how's he going to do it? It's God. He's like right there. He's saying it in every way. He's demonstrating it. And they're freaking out. They can't quite get it. And we shake our heads like, what is the matter with those people? Like, did he pick, like, the bottom of the barrel that cannot figure things out? What's going on? Why can't they get it? I'm going to show you something that helped me understand their mindset. Um, as you got to catch this. Now, please bear with me. This is not going to be beautiful. Um, here, I'll move this over a little bit. Uh, here's, let's just say this is Peter. Here's a disciple. Awesome. Okay, there's Peter. When Peter was thinking about the Messiah, thinking about God. There's, there's a couple things that are going on. This, picture this as a mountaintop. Here's a mountain. Oh, I know. Here's another one. Here's another mountain. Kind of goes off that way. Now, over here, and there's a valley in between. We're going to just say these two mountains represent two things. One is the cross. The other one represents a crown. Work with me. That's a crown, okay? Now, in between here is some space. We call this space in between the age of the church, the church age, which is what we live in. From a perspective of a disciple or an Old Testament saint, someone who believed uh, or knew about God before 
Christ fully fulfilled everything he said he was going to be doing. When they looked towards the future, they saw this. They saw a couple mountaintops. They can't see a valley. They didn't realize there's time in between this. There's a first coming of Christ and the second coming. They hear these promises. A king is coming. He's going to make all things right. He's going, to, he's going to settle it. He's going to come and meet it. So their expectation, when Messiah comes, he's going to deal with it. And he's going to establish rule. So as they're looking at all of this, first of all, he has to come into grips with this. There's a cross for the king. He's going to die. Okay, they had to get through that lens. And then he's going away. And then... A long time later, he's returning. And that's when he establishes rule. So you've got to give these guys a little break. As they're looking at Jesus, he's making these amazing claims. They're wondering, when is he going to deal with the Romans who are oppressing? When are they going to, when's he going to deal with these Pharisees, these religious leaders? He's a king, but he's sleeping on the ground. I don't get this. Their mind is racing. They cannot put their hands around it. You have to understand, they had, they had a tradition and they had expectations that they had, like a lens they had to look through. And so when they saw Jesus, it was filtered through their own expectations and their own traditions, which impaired their view of him. And you see a gradual unfolding of that as you read through the New Testament. Now, just like the disciples, we have our own traditions, we have our own experiences. And it's going to be a lens that we look through when we look at Jesus, when we read his word. We often need a new lens too. This is what 1 Corinthians 13, 12, look at this version. It's on your outline. It's from the message. It says, we don't yet see things clearly. We squint in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. Wow. There will be a time we'll see clearly. This is written in Corinthians, the city of Corinth. They'd have these big bronze mirrors. But the problem with bronze, it's not a great reflector all the time. So a lot of times it'd be this foggy image. They use that imagery to portray something. When we look and think of God, we don't even see it very clearly. We're impaired in how we view it. One day God will fix that. But what this story illustrates and the entire unfolding of the book of Mark is that our vision of God will get more clear, but it will also require a second touch. Now for us, we have to say, what kind of lenses, blinding lenses, that we, do we carry? I'll mention three. First one is this. Here's the first blinding lens. It could be the blinding lens of legalism. Of legalism. This is a lens that can blind you to God's goodness and blind you to his freedom. It can come from a lot of different traditions. Certain Baptist ones, maybe Catholic, could even be Lutheran. Depends on your church upbringing. Another way of saying it is it's like religion. That means it focuses on the rules, not the relationship. Now, these churches may not have even taught it. 
it just may have been one of the things that the expectations and the rules were so emphasized, it suddenly became a focus. You may have heard phrases like this, it takes three to thrive. Well, what's that mean? You got to go to church Sunday morning, come back Sunday night, go back to Wednesday night church. And you're going to, you know, it's a sense like if you're not, you're not thriving. Uh, and then how's God looking at me? And there's these, it, it starts building this, this thought. You're always evaluating how that week went. This lens is amplified if you come from a family where approval and acceptance was hard to get. This lens will be even more intensified. The challenge with this is that it gives this perception that God is distant, he is demanding, he's formal. Gives a perception that love and acceptance has to be earned. So all of a sudden, when you look at your life and your spiritual life with God, there's such a focus on what you're doing and you will evaluate your spiritual condition uh, and you're so inwardly focused that day to day you're just vacillating up and down because uh, you're, you're staring so much at the good versus bad and it's a constant thing of scales. You're looking at scales, good, bad, where am I at? That can even turn into a comparison with other people. Uh, they're doing this, I'm doing a little better. Oh, but over here they're doing this. Oh, they're so much better off and spiritually better off with God. Now again, it is not legalism to spend time with God, to go and attend a service and to be there. Listen, it says, don't forsake the assembly. Be there. There is life in it. The thing is, it's the difference is what you're focusing on. The focus is always him and relationship. It's Jesus. It can even play out so much that in your interactions with other people, you can begin to act in a certain way that you will encourage and affirm and reward people only for their behavior, not just for who they are. And if it's your kids, that's going to leave a mark. Just know this. It's a lens of legalism that we can all fall into. You know that when God sees you, do you know what he sees? If you're a Christ follower, he sees Jesus. And he's pretty ecstatic about him. So positionally, you're clean. If you get to go to the throne of grace and you know you have full acceptance, do you know what that gives you? It gives you freedom to be honest with all the darkness and you allow him to heal it. You become a much freer person. So lens of legalism, do you have that? Second lens I want to mention, it's the lens of naturalism. Naturalism. What is this? Um... This is a lens that can literally blind you to his power that is available. Naturalism is something in the West that we do. We focus on the natural world. We, in, an, in a way, we begin to disregard anything that we can't see or touch. The supernatural. And most societies around the world will esteem and honor that. But we come from a tradition that doesn't, totally, I know for myself, there were several things that built into this for me. I had like three strikes against me. The first one is my theological tradition was one that taught that the purpose of the New Testament miracles was to authenticate the New Testament. That was their sole purpose. So once you had the New Testament complete, they're done. 
The problem with that perspective is the New Testament doesn't teach it. Uh, But I had this perception, so all of a sudden I pulled back on any expectation that God would ever do anything powerful. I had that tradition. Another thing, a strike against me, is that I can be pretty skeptical by nature. Became a cop at 21. Uh, I still do that on the side. Used to people lying, making things up, right? You roll your eyes, here it comes. Skeptical. Um, Even our formal education will play into it. We'll discredit anything. You cannot touch or see. So I had that. A third strike for me is just bad church experiences or, quote, charismatic experiences. Remember, I had a roommate in college, and uh, every once in a while, he'd come back with this weird prophecy of doom. Uh, Arrive, pictures coming off the wall, water's piling up, stores of food. uh, I just got back from, like, my reading comp class. Like, what is going on? Uh, And, you know, major earthquake's going to hit this week. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, thanks for prepping for that. Uh, You know, off we go. Now the week goes by, another week, pretty soon the pictures are back up, water's disappearing. Um, But it just, now I've got this whole skeptical thing. I'm I'm like, what is this? I remember going to places where the supposed supernatural things were taking place. And um, I remember there's a time somebody was praying for me. And it's like he puts his hand on my head and he starts praying. And as he's praying, um, he's slowly putting pressure on my forehead. And so, you know, if someone does that, you're, whoa, I had to catch myself. And he says, hey, 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 don't fight it. I'm like, fight it? I said, you're, pu- you're pushing me. You're pushing my forehead. I'm like, what are you, if you're thinking God's knocking, like, listen, it's just, that's a turnoff, right? Uh, there's some woman that runs up. She feels knocked down by the power of God. And she looks down and her blouse had come up showing this, her side a little bit. And she's out and she looks up and she goes, you know, out again. Okay. You know what those do? But those are all of a sudden, I get imprints in my mind. Like, really? Like, we're f- people faking? Like, so what that does, it plays into an assumption, which makes me not even want to go near it. It's a naturalistic lens. It is not the lens of the New Testament. Um, there is a profound thinker, one of the brightest men of our time. His name is J.P. Moreland. He's a distinguished professor, does philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, wrote a great book called The Kingdom Triangle, and I can relate to something he said. He's referencing a quote by a man by the name of Kraft, who said that there, in the evangelical community, there's an assumption that the miraculous won't happen. And he said, and J.P. Moreland says this, evangelicals tend to believe God has stopped doing incredible things we read about. I fear Kraft's assertion largely characterized my own Christian journey until a few years ago when I began looking into it and experiencing it. He's admitting he had a naturalistic lens that shut him down to it. And has since, totally, once he was open, it radically changed him. Uh, For him, in 05, he had a couple elders. One of the first experiences he had, and I've heard him tell this story, and he writes about it as well, but he, one of the first eye-opening is he had the worst case of laryngitis for 35 years. He had a massive speaking schedule that week. 
the earliest would be seven to ten days before he can even think of being able to speak or do anything. He was out. So he's at church that night, can't even talk. Uh, a couple elders like, hey, we're going to pray for you. Uh, put hands on him. They start praying. He's thinking, whatever. Um, just wants to get home. And as they're praying, he feels heat pour into his chest, into his throat, within two to three minutes, fully recovered. And it, it just shook him that even the little things in life, God can care about. People just asked. And God in his compassion and power moved. You ever seen that? You ever asked for that? If you have a naturalistic lens, you'll probably pull back. I began asking. I've seen things. It was fun. The other day I was just at, my, uh, at Sports Clips, the lady who cuts my hair over there. Uh, we were just sitting there talking. She goes, hey, I met someone who knows you. I'm like, oh, she's telling me about it. She says, yeah, apparently her, her son was really ill. And they're really scared. Uh, his fever would not break. Uh, the treatments weren't working. And she said, you went over and you prayed for him. And I had gone with a couple elders and we <laughs> prayed for him. And fever broke. He gets better. God moved. And what was fascinating, she's not a believer. But she goes, I am just so amazed. God still does those things. She goes, that lady was still in tears. It's happened a long time ago. You know, um, I love something that Paul said. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, because it's also a challenge. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Christianity has always been a show-and-tell activity. People have seen it. Um, one of the things I used to kick back on is, well, you don't see the type and kind of things in the New Testament. Um, you don't always see people getting healed. That's true. Even Paul in the New Testament didn't get healed when he got prayed for. So there is some mystery in this. But it doesn't mean God never does it. There is a, uh, an ER physician in the L.A. area. She's currently serving at Glendale Adventist Hospital. Her husband's name is John Lowe. He is a pastor out in Pasadena. And uh, he's a friend of mine. And John... Uh, was telling me a story. Uh, I was just asking him different trips, and they had done a trip to Namibia. It's in Africa, and it's a, you know, in the southwest portion of Africa. And they took a team over there, and he says, I just got to tell you, God was doing amazing things over there. And one of the things that had happened is they get there, and they had to get permission from the Muslim chief. This is Chief Nachenta. You can show a picture of him. Uh, this, you'll see John and the chief up here. But they had to get permission from the chief. Is he coming? <laughs> Slowly. There he is. Hey, John. Uh, and there's the chief. Uh, so the chief takes on the name of the town. The town is the town of Nachenta. But he got permission to pray for people in the name of Jesus. So this, this takes place. So his wife, John's wife, who's the ER physician along with their son, whose name is Josh, 11 years old at the time, uh, there's a man who is blind in this little town. Blind in the way the eyes are whited over. You seen that? Eyes are whited over. So those two pray for this man, along with the chairman of their elder board. The three of them are praying for this man, so the ER physician. She's leading this thing. And they're praying for this man. And she describes it as like snow flaking off his eyes and beginning to fall a matter of about 30 seconds, his sight was restored. That's just awesome when you hear an ear physician describing that. Um, God can move. He did something miraculous. Now, do you think that caused a little splash in the town? 
you know, people start getting some awareness. They had visited again about four months later. It was about five to six weeks after their planting season, and they, be, they planted. The crops are coming. The problem is the rain stopped. And you can see a picture of their crops here. Uh, the crops are beginning to fade. When crops fade there and there's no irrigation, people die. It's just what it is. They knew God moved in power. They said, would you do something? Would you pray that God would send rain? They began sending prayer tweets out to their church back home, and they went and prayed. And they asked God, and what do you think God did? Next picture, you see one of the little girls in the town standing in the rain. This is not a light rain. Uh, in fact, you're going to hear, listen, go ahead and play the little video clip right now. There's a little video clip here. But you'll, you'll hear the little kids in the background. Ecstatic. Do you see how much rain that is? Isn't it fun to see that? So you can see the next picture, but I mean, God sent rain, and it, there's an even another clip I won't show you. It's, it gets even more intense. I mean, the rain came. It came in abundance. Um, go all the way to the last picture. You'll see someone getting baptized. The person you're seeing getting baptized here is the chief's son. I mean, chief's brother, excuse me. And he is someone who could not hear out of one ear. One leg was lame, and they prayed. He's restored. He began working in fields. This is him getting baptized. Um, this is just a little village, God beginning to move and act. All it is is the people of God just willing to ask God for his compassion and power. And there's times God will move like that. It can be a lens of naturalism. I'll give you one more lens to be aware of, and I'll just mention this one briefly. This is the other side of the spectrum. It's the lens of emotionalism. Now, this can come from, if you have, especially a heavy Pentecostal or charismatic experience, um, it is a lens that will make you look and view things through experiences almost predominantly. Not that the churches were teaching it, but there can be a sense where you will chase an experience to chase an emotion, and you'll evaluate your relationship with God based on your emotion or current experience. The danger of that is that you can pull back from your day-to-day -day walking with God and just, just living your life, and if there's not an emotional high or something, you may assume that your relationship with God is off. Um, it can blind you to the word, deep thinking. One scripture I'll give you on this is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. It says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Your mind. There's a great phrase that says, God offends the mind to reveal the heart. And you'll hear that a lot in these circles. Do you know what? That's true. You'll see God do it with the Pharisees often. And it does reveal your heart. The danger is if you've also got to emphasize the word. And again, not every church does this. I'm just saying, depending on your tradition, your experience, do you find yourself someone who chases emotion or chasing experiences? Matthew 22 has a key focus. What's the focus? It is relationship with God. It's walking with God. That's the focus. Love the Lord your God. Not the byproducts of walking with God. Pursue Him. Emotions are awesome and needed. They are gifted to us by God. The danger is it becomes unstable ground 
if that's your assessment of your relationship with God. The Word of God stabilizes us. It's a key thing. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I love that. Keep your eyes on who? Jesus. Another way of saying it, chasing experiences or emotions is like chasing the shadow of the king. Chase the king. Keep your eyes on him. Um, Three lenses, and we could go on. Know what this is just showing? We often need a second touch in two places. We need a second touch for our own darkness. We need a second touch for a new lens. We are going to conclude this service by giving time for the Lord to do that, to lead us. We're going to be taking communion together. We're going to be going to the tables. After that, we'll be taking our offering. Um, But I want to help set this up. I think that people in this room need a second touch. I want one myself. When you go to the tables, you're going to find two things there. And this is really for those who consider themselves a Christ follower. If you've never given your life to Christ, your eyes may be open to the fact that he is true king. He has come. He has died. He rose, proving he is God. He's returning. And you say, I want to give my life to the true king of kings. I'll follow him. Forgive me for my sin. I turn from my darkness. I turn to you. You do that, you're in. The table's open for you as well. On that table is bread. On that table is a cup. The bread represents the brokenness of Jesus when he went to a cross. What that gives us confidence is that every sin that we hold and feel shame for that we've ever done or will do was put on a cross. So when we come to God, he does not value and evaluate us based on what we have done or other failures we will do. He evaluates it on the fact that it is now said, it is written, it is complete, it has been paid for. Gives us freedom to come in openness and honesty and truly admit the places that still need a second touch in our life. So when you go, just say this real simply. Say, Lord, lead me. I, I want to know where I need a second touch. If it is sin, confess it. Just confess it. Say, I turn from it. Just like a wound being cleaned out, let him heal you of it. If it is pain, release it. Let him heal it. If it's unforgiveness, do not leave here. Don't even take that until you extend it. He forgave you. Let him deal with the fallout. You let it go. And then ask him for a new lens. You want to see him in ways that your own tradition, our own tradition, and experiences have blinded us to who he truly is. Let's just say, would you help us see you more clearly today? I'll pray for that. Lord, right now, there are people in here turning to you, some for the very first time. Pray your spirit meets them powerfully as you fill them up. I pray you'd fill us all the places of overflowing. Would you examine our hearts as we go? 
We want to respond. Just like you taking a blind man gently by a hand and leading him, you're the guide, we're the follower. Direct our thoughts. We'll, we'll respond to whatever you show us. But we do want to see Jesus. We want to see you more clearly today. Would you open our eyes as we worship and celebrate going to the tables together as a church family? We pray in your name. You're dismissed at the tables. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians one more time. It says, we don't, see, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. That is a powerful and amazing picture. Do you know the heart of God is to always draw us, give us a clearer sight and understanding of who he is. He loves to do that. You know, our life is short. It's going to come. It is going to go. There will be a time we stand before him. You know, it's going to be an amazing, beautiful time for all Christ followers. I encourage you to run to him. You know, he won't meet you just in a service. He loves to meet you. I encourage you to run to him all throughout the week. Let him keep, you know, doing a second touch, giving you a second touch in whatever area it is needed. And let him keep healing us all. Be powerful. I want to encourage you to come back next week. Mike will be back continuing on this series. And then we're going to be taking a break from the book of Mark, and we're going to be starting a new series. It's called The Call to Community. You're going to find that in your program. Uh, these are little invite cards. We encourage you to use them. Invite somebody to come on out. It'll be kicking off on August 31st, yeah, September 1st, that weekend. Great time to invite your friends out. So use this. It'll be a great series. Mike will be kicking that one off also. And uh, we'd love to see new people being drawn here. So be praying about that. Before you leave, I'm going to just ask God to release a blessing over you. So Lord, I ask that you would manifest yourself in great and powerful, new and fresh ways over everyone. Would we realize how great you truly are, how powerful you truly are. May you heal us up from the inside out, all the places that are broken or in pain. And would you lift the veil of all the lenses that blind us? We want to see you more clearly. So would you do a great work within us and through us as a church this week? We ask in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. Woo!